and welcome to episode 18 of the 1099 for the week of November 9th, which is actually my mom's birthday. So happy birthday to my mom. I doubt she'll listen to this. I am Josiah Renauden, the host. And uh, with me today, I have someone who I've wanted to talk to on this podcast for quite a long time. Uh, he's one of my favorite people to talk to, and he's the co-founder and president of Oddworld Inhabitants. It's Lauren Landing. Lauren, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Josiah. Absolutely. When I first started this podcast, I remember you, know, you, you kind of make a short list in your head of these are the guests I want. And you were right around the top of the list. Uh, really? Oh, absolutely. You. I mean, I actually first met you, if you remember, back at E3 2013. We were at Michael Pactor's party. Oh, um, yeah. Well, that's the party, right? The, the party, which uh, <laughs> I, it's always a funny story because at that time I was, um, you know, I hadn't been on GameSpot or IGN or any of those sites yet. I got to that party just in the weirdest way of uh, the person I was writing for met Pactor at an airport. And ran. Yeah. It was like you should come to my party, and I ended up there and had no right to be there, but it worked out perfectly. And this was during the year, if people remember, of that big Sony mic dropping press conference where the price is popping off. They're talking about you know the oh the indie showcase, all that. Absolutely, yeah. and I, I know you were on stage and you were talking yeah. about uh, Odd World, New and Tasty, and it was a really wonderful show to go to. So to kind of just bring it back for a second, what was it like working with that version of Sony, that specific? this new indie-focused Sony for new and tasty? I have to say, uh, extremely surprising in a positive way. But it, to understand that, I think, you know, you've got to go back and look at Sony uh, in the gaming through their history. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's certain people that were consistently there from the beginning, like, uh, you know, Shu Yoshida. But then at the same time, when the PlayStation came out, it was a different world in gaming, and uh, as you may recall, Japan was recognized, the Japanese designers were recognized as really the hot game designers. Yeah. And, and so the PlayStation was coming out of Japan. And so really, even getting on the initial PlayStation was something where, in my opinion, you know, American designers were kind of considered second class. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, in general, you know, and I'm not just saying, you know, that I think that was Sony's perspective because I never felt that directly from Sony. But that was a general, you know, uh, journalists were writing about that all the time, that Japanese designers are somehow really had that extra magic touch. Yeah. And uh, my how tame times change, eh? <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, yeah. But uh, so from that perspective forward, the PlayStation 1 comes out and it's really the... Uh, you know, in my recall, aside from PC, it was the first like really viable uh, CD-based, CD-ROM-based mm. uh, console system. I mean, there was others before it, but they just didn't make it right. So rather than hash through the details of history. But uh, so the PlayStation was this kind of elegant machine. And it was also uh, Kudaragi, right? That was his first run at it. Mm. And uh, Ken Kudaragi, the inventor of the PlayStation. <clears throat> and... Uh, and that episode of Sony, it was very exciting, you know, and we were just able to sort of connect in to it uh, in a good way. We happened to know Bernie Stoller, who was the president of Sony U.S. at the time. And that made it really easy because, like, you know, he and my partner, Sherry, with their in their previous marriages had, you know, used to go on vacations together when they were kids, like, high, you know, college, out of college. So that was kind of an interesting reuniting. So we actually had a good in, you know, we got treated well. Uh, and then he left, <laughs> and, the play, and the PlayStation 2 was coming out. And that's really when uh, a lot of the, I felt the, uh, 
the tone started to change because Sony just, you know, there's one like it, it was like Microsoft in the beginning. You know, when you when you're not even in the industry yet, you're really trying everything to win. Yeah, absolutely. But after you win, then the, no matter what, now you're dealing with a winner. Mm-hmm. And so winners tend to be a little bit more, you know, uh, harder to get to. Right. Yeah. And the PlayStation 2 <clears throat> was, uh, you know, in its legacy, I, you know, I interviewed uh, Shu Yoshida at uh, Dice this past year. And we were talking about this, you know, and there's a video on it, you know, uh, so it's, you know, Lauren interviews Shu at Dice. Mm. And uh, we talk about some of that legacy and what went wrong, you know, and I, I certainly was uh, vocal about some of my complaints at the time. But in the PlayStation 2 era, what happened was it became harder to get access to information. The development system was really uh, ultimately terrible. And uh, <clears throat> you had a, a um, you know, really kind of an engineering genius, uh, Ken Kudaragi, designing the system. But the fact was he didn't really care about how developers made games. He just he was more focused on how can I make these chip configurations cheaper and a viable consumer electronics computer? How can I bring supercomputing <laughs> consumer electronics? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, while all that was fun and noble, if you were a developer, you had to go out and raise money to uh, to uh, do your games. But if, but if you didn't have an OS that even the guys how let me just ask you this. If you remember, how long did it take Sony first party in internal Sony's own development groups to deliver their first PS2 game? They were not the first out the gate. Right. Yeah. And that's and uh, so everyone was having kind of a, a hard time. And if you were first party Sony, the. Uh, Everyone had to acknowledge, you know, we're having, you know, it's difficult. Some things are difficult. And if I, if Sony were paying our, our games, they probably would have been like, well, we understand why you're going to go over budget. But if someone else was paying for your games, you know, anytime you go over budget, that's another pound of flesh out of you, out of your deal, out of your company. Mm. And what was happening was that basically the PS2 was absolutely impossible to predict what your costs would be. At the time, I wasn't articulating in the same way because really I didn't understand business the same. Mm-hmm. But in hindsight, that was the real problem. You could not predict your costs. And as a result, anyone who really dove into it aggressively, like ambitiously, like, oh, here's all this horsepower and I'm going to build this new big thing, they got themselves into trouble. And, and you know, we were no exception. And uh, so if you can't predict your costs and you're trying to run a business and you're, you know, um, getting advances in money and you keep going over, and you still really can't predict because you, you, you don't even really have a, a, an operating a development environment that's, that's, that's conducive or familiar. Uh, you get into trouble, and I think a lot of developers did. A lot of developers got into real trouble and ultimately put them out. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that was just you know time, technology, and history, right? But it, it, Sony at that time was becoming you know more and more... Uh, challenging to to really work with you know and they were on top now they're the winners right and uh that carried into the ps3 era so the sort of philosophy and energy of the uh ps2 uh you know kudaragi really wins big with playstation one ps2 comes out and he said things that were just really offensive you know so people were saying what do you think about these uh development costs and he would say, well, I think it's, you know, I, I think uh, the PS2 being so hard is a good thing because it's going to weed out all the, all the weak engineers. <laughs> Jeez. And you're just like, that's the magnitude. I don't want to get into trouble here, but <laughs> the magnitude of ignorance in that statement is, you know, 
was not being measured that well. Yeah. I mean, even from, I'm sorry to interrupt you, even from a consumer side, uh, like looking toward the PS3, when you're talking about the price of that console, the messaging was kind of like, well, you know, get a second job, like sell stuff to get this $600 console. So I totally know what you mean. (laughs) Yeah, you know. So, uh, I mean, I have respect for the man, you know, but I am saying if, if, if you're trying to run a business, you're trying to build a business, you're working. I mean, if you're a developer. You know, I, I've had to change my tone over the years because I'll kill my, I would die. You know, I have Bell's palsy in my face. I've done multiple in a night row all-nighters. I've averaged 60 to 80-hour weeks throughout my career. Oof. It's hard work, man. It's yeah. hard work. And uh, and so you're just trying, really, you know, you hope to win, but you're just trying to survive. And now you've got, you know, the more employees you have, the more you feel responsible. You know, if you got to lay people off, like, all oh, that becomes a heavy burden on you. You know, if you're not a psycho, you know, <laughs> decent human that's weighs pretty heavy and uh so it was it was really becoming like whoa um there wasn't an indie you know distribution path you were still going through physical retail which meant you were basically still in a publisher's game you know you didn't have independent developers producing their own content really and uh so that was that was it was helping to shape into an industry of blockbusters only, you know, kind of like what Hollywood is today. Like, mm-hmm. you don't see small films really coming out in the big theaters, right? It's, it's about blockbusters. And that's where I just kind of, I felt like there wasn't, so we're at the, the tail end of the PS3 era, right? I just mm-hmm. felt like there wasn't going to be a lot of changes and things would just kind of be that way. You know, development systems wouldn't be getting easier. I mean, that was really the promise of the Xbox, right? And that development was going to be easier on a better system, yeah. that, that it was being designed by people who had development experience who cared about developers. That was the, that was the hook of the Xbox to the development community early, and people really wanted to hear that. They wanted to hear, you're listening to how we build games, not just giving us some weird-ass configuration of technology and saying, if you're smart, you'll figure it out. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, so at certain points in time, you can get away with that. If you're if you're a big group, you know, <laughs> Windows got away with it for years. <laughs> but uh, uh, so so, you know, for me looking at the industry, I was like, a lot of things were happening. So by the end of the PS3 era, you know, I was not playing, and instead waiting for better opportunities to emerge. What I didn't expect was a couple of things. One, through the PS3 era, something happened that I absolutely did not expect, which was uh, PSN and a reverse emulation to simulate PS1 games. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was we could actually uh, start to self-publish on Sony's network and sell digitally without going through physical product. But if you were dealing with launches and new hardware, you know, and we were right there as a launch title for Microsoft Xbox, the first one, you know, yeah. working with all those that team very closely, very exciting time. But when uh, you were there on the beginning of a, a new hardware journey, uh, they never wanted old titles. You know, it was always about pushing new chips, pushing new capabilities. They didn't want any games from the past. And franchises is a different story, but a game that was on a previous generation, they didn't want it on their system. Yeah, they, they want the best graphics, the newest looking thing. Yeah, the retailers didn't want it. You know, it was kind of... Uh, uh, I think there was a lot of business reasons in that day why that was the case, right? Mm. But what happened in PS4 completely took me by surprise. But let me first say, so PSN allowing us 
when we were able to put up ourselves uh, and we, you know, somehow managed to retain the rights to all our, our stuff. When we put up uh, Abe on basically on PSN for PS3, which was a no brainer because they actually built reverse, you know, uh, uh, backward compatible software, mm. which I absolutely didn't expect because they didn't even want PS2 titles on PS3. Right? Yeah, yeah. See <laughs> you know how different it is today, where every PS3 game is now coming out on PS4. Exactly, but you can recognize that, and this is where I was really, you know, disappointed in the industry because the, the industry was so technology bound. It was like, well, where's classics going to be? Mm. You know, like music. We still listen to blues. We still listen to you know Elvis and the Beatles, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, who cares what new technology came along? That was great, heartfelt music. And gaming seemed like it was never going to have that historic legacy because the games were just evaporating with generations of technology and new technology didn't want to push old games. So this is kind of quagmire. And I think maybe like things like iTunes and uh, th that really maybe shaped some opinions in, in how games could be distributed, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Steam certainly changed the horizon, right, which is the first place we put our games up digitally. Mm. But what really was surprising was they started to sell as well. <laughs> so both things were like, I never thought that those games were going to come back. I, I just thought the properties had value. And, but but what, what I think happened was, was that gaming machines were now reaching that threshold where, you know, if you were looking at a sports game and you were in a bar and it was on a big screen, you know, you had to look at it for 15, 20 seconds to figure out if that was the game or that was the show. Yeah the live event. And so I say that because, you know, graphics quality was reaching that point where the technical bells and whistles weren't all that much of a sell point anymore. You know, how much better looking do you make close to real? Yeah. And, uh, but before that, you know, we were really crawling out of the, you know, the, uh, CG uh, Darwinian <laughs> history of, you know, struggling to look better. And so now, uh, there, there's this digital distribution brought the ability to actually have catalogs available where you didn't have to depend on does Best Buy want to carry it or not? Is Walmart going to give us shelf space or not? And that really changed everything. You know, and this is like the reason I held on and believed digital distribution was coming was I used to listen to interviews with Russell Simmons. Remember? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he was just, in my opinion, just, you know, way ahead of his time. Genius. Uh, the, you know, the rapper. Yeah. And, uh, he was talking about retail's limitations. This is in the 1980s, and I was listening closely, and he's talking about, look, man, the future is not seven genres at Tower Records because that's all a company wants to fit into its distribution chain. He said the future is 700 genres yeah. digitally stored, and there's going to be micro niches. You know, and he, he just saw it clearly, man, and he was, this is the 80s, dude, right? And what PS3 PSN didn't come out till when, you know, now we're, you know, 20 years later. Yeah. But that really inspired me to believe in this digitally distributed future. And I used to say, this is going to be a future, you know, and I remember people like, uh, you know, I'd say it sometimes on some public threads and then some people would rip me apart. I remember <laughs> Mark Rain ripped me, ripped me apart. You know, he's like, ah, this is bullshit digital. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, how and, much uh, that's changed. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I mean, he certainly wasn't wrong for his own, own interest in their company. You know, they did fantastic epic, right? Uh, much better than we did. But 
Uh, I used to get knocked for that because people would be like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Here we are today. And I love how time and history play out. But uh, so now I'm just thinking, well, uh, you know, okay, so Steam and PSN, they're really working for us. How many others are really going to get on this bandwagon? At the time, you know, PS3 era, we were still shut out from delivering our games on uh, uh, Xbox Live. Yeah. But we were pretty much shut out. So it's still kind of the old games were still going on. And I mean, then sort of political, bureaucratic business sense. And uh, so, you know, I wasn't thinking about consoles in, in a real progressive way. I was thinking, you know, PCs is the easiest way to get your stuff out there. Steam's got the largest distribution of our audience, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but we started building New and Tasty, which was the remake of Abe's Odyssey. And we go to Eurogamer. And I'm actually trying to start a couple of other things, and I'm kind of letting the odd world business be on autopilot. Uh, we're working with some developers, but you know, I'm kind of handing it to them and going, eh, "Just do this conversion, and let's remake this game." But you know, stay within reason. And when we showed uh, New and Tasty at Eurogamer, um, a couple things happened. One, the, the house was packed, and I just was very surprised by that because we had been off the mic for a while, mm -hmm. right? And uh, the other thing was uh, Adam Boyce from Sony reached out and said, hey, guys, don't you want to be on PS4? <laughs> now, <laughs> now, that was like, you know, get, getting the call you never expected. Yeah. Before, you were like, Sony, Sony, you know, uh, I remember when I'm a fan of Phil Harrison's, but I remember when Phil Harrison was running it. You know, can we get another PS2 dev station? Ah, oh, sorry, you know, they're, they're not available. They were fifteen or $17,000. Oh, and basically, you were having trouble getting one, you know, but EA and Activision, they all had 120. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'm exaggerating, but, you know, it, it felt yeah, like... Just, just pro disproportional there. Yeah, because they were all, you know, the blockbusters got them first. I mean, that makes sense, you know. But a number of things were now happening, you know. And I think one of the most important things that was happening was uh, smartphones. And this is, this is the entangled history. What happened with smartphones was the app stores. What happened with app stores was real self-publishing. What happened with that was people could get free dev kits. So if you, people got their iPhone, they could get a free development environment. And then they could, uh, you know, develop their own software and sell it, sell a whoopee cushion and make a million bucks. <laughs> it, right? But that really changed things because all of a sudden these developers that had been shut out, designers that, you know, were still trying to climb up the chain. I mean, if it's a blockbuster industry, then you've got only a few real above the line forces and, and millions of soldiers, but, but you don't have a lot of place for people to be creative individually at smaller levels. Mm. And that's really, I think Apple really started changing the console way of looking at things because it provided ways to for developers to ha have more independence. They just had to think differently and smaller about how they were going to get to their audience. Do you think they also allowed the consumer to feel more comfortable spending money on digital purchases? So, I mean, I, I know a lot of people in general, initially, uh, like if you go to the Xbox One with that idea of you know everything online, stuff like that, people kind of get freaked out and they want their physical copies. Do you think beyond just developers and being able to uh, kind of popularized self-publishing in that way. They also gave consumers this feeling of, oh, I can go to iTunes and spend 99 cents and buy all this stuff digitally and not physically and be okay with that. Well, that's it. I think, I, I think iTunes and, and uh, you know, some others like that were the ones really 
way ahead of the game. So the game industry is still thinking, I bought a $60 game. I want the damn disc on my shelf. I want something to take back to GameStop and get some money for another game. Yes. Right? And uh, so the idea of having that digital one was like, well, wait a minute, I can't take it back. So there was logical res- uh, uh, restrictions to that, you know. But as a CD guy, music guy with a big collection, I remember buying multiple Sony 500 disc changers so I could try and get my, you know, 1500 CDs all accessible. Mm-hmm. Right before real digital servers. And so I was sick of digital media, uh, physical media, because I was like, all these CDs, it's a pain in the ass, man. When it's digital, everything changes. And uh, and I happened to know guys that were like uh, Tony Fidel, you know, who designed the iPad. I mean, the iPod created the iPod, pretty much shaped iTunes, you know, all that stuff, and, and got some insights into their thinking. I was like, wow, this, this is the way to go, man. Just digital, just digital. You know, we lose all this friction. We can get straight to the audience. You can build different businesses. You know, you could have uh, the retailers weren't going to squeeze you out because you didn't have something they wanted to carry. Like all these different causes and effects. It, it shined the light on why digital was going to be a much greater possibility for a wider range of people. And I mean that particularly with creatives and you know small businesses. So back to the story, Adam Boyce calls and said, hey, man, why don't we send you some uh, dev kits and why don't you be on Sony? We'd love to have Oddworld back. And um, and that was just completely out of the blue because <laughs> we used to have to call and beg and still barely get anything, you know. So you saw that there was this sort of seismic change occurring and um, it shocked me. And I said, of course, we want to be on your system, you know, like, is this Sony on the phone or is this like, you know, so, you know some crack call, someone yeah, who's just impersonating Sony, <laughs> someone just fucking with me. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so that really represented that. And I think something wonderful happened, which was they kind of lost the PS3, that console era and they didn't lose, but, um, Microsoft was recognized as the winner of that generation. Yes. And I think what that did was that made Sony feel like they were really in that number two slot. And that changed a lot. And then, uh, you know, Kuduragi retired. He did great. He got his lifetime achievements. The man's a genius. But that meant new blood was there. And now that new blood was like, look, man, we are tired of hearing from developers wanting to, you know, kill us on the phone. Like, it's miserable, man. You're defending a, a, uh, a basically a very uh, expensive and uh, unintuitive you know, kind of kind of bizarre configuration uh, of hardware, and, and everyone's like, you know what? If I can find a a, a better development environment, I'll, I'll go there. Yeah. And and fuck these old convoluted systems. Well, <laughs> a lot of people yeah. just went out of business, you know. But I think the the uproar inside Sony of like, we need to change our ways. We need to be smarter. We need to be better. And why aren't we doing this? And why aren't we doing that? And they brought some new blood into the fold. Uh, Kaz is is taken from PlayStation to run the entire Sony global corporation, you know, mm. uh, network of companies. So that was a huge shift. You saw now sec- PlayStation wasn't only in the beginning, it was the odd stepchild that no other divisions believed would work out. And then uh, it became the biggest moneymaker at Sony. And then the people who helped shape PlayStation were now running Sony. And so this is all big, big, big changes. And with this new blood, I'm thinking uh, it, my real entry point to recognizing where this is coming from was Adam Boyce. And Adam is a very smart guy. And Adam uh, hadn't been brewing inside Sony the whole time. He was out there, you know, in Hollywood doing deals with with uh, uh, 
the various, uh, you know, hardcore Hollywood parties. And they're not easy to deal with either. Mm. And he was figuring out, and he, I think he had a, a startup that was in the social space, which meant he dialed into another type of science, you know, that was more understanding what's really going on. And that was very outside the model of console thinking. Yeah, and he was at Midway for a bit too, I think. So he yeah, had been, yeah. you know, in kind of the development trenches for a while. Yeah, I like Adam really, you know, I'm, I'm a big, big fan and impressed. Uh, so he brought, I, I'm not saying he was alone, but that, what I'm saying is that was, you know, sort of our, our viewpoint into the new world of Sony was, uh, you know, he, he's the one who called, right? And yet he was the one in charge of all this stuff, this stuff with new indies and, and uh, a number of things. I don't know what all his responsibilities were, but that was a huge difference signifying how the culture was changing. And one other massive effect was occurring, which was, they had, uh, you know, Mark Cerny as the head of engineering oh, yeah. for the, you know, the, the lead hardware designer. I forget what his title is, but, you know, basically designer of the PS4. And uh, I've known Mark. You know, I pitched Mark Abe's Odyssey on paper when he was president <laughs> of Universal. And he was like the youngest president of business because he had had that success with his own title, Marple Mandis, Madness, that he like programmed in his bedroom or something, you know, back in the Amiga days. And so Mark was a badass man. Yeah. You know, Mark Cerny is a serious mind. And, uh, you know, people like John Carmack get a lot more credit. Uh, well, let, me, not, let me say, you know, a lot more people know about Carmack. Yeah, he's a much more well-known figure. Yeah, but, uh, you know, people that know Cerny is like, when I heard Cerny was designing the system, I, I, then I understood that a developer was designing the new hardware. And a, a, a developer that, uh, you know, could speak Japanese could uh you know deal with the chip manufacturing like he understood man all, all of it and it was like whoa it was kind of like reminiscent of what happened in the xbox one you know you had kevin Bacchus and seamus and you know ed freeze helping to shape this thing and uh but they actually understood development yeah and so that was a big change right and now now you're going oh psn is really more of an itunes rather than Sony's latest generation console platform, and then the old ones go away and you can't get them anymore. Mm -hmm. So the idea of libraries and uh, archive games, classic games running on new systems was becoming a, a more of a common idea, you know? And Microsoft is a little late to grasp it fully because there's basically, I think because they came out of a history of monopoly where they could just get away with all the shit they wanted. Yeah. And, uh, and that was now changing, right? They caught a lot of slack. Yeah, that. they did not get away with that at all. I feel like they're still kind of digging themselves out of that hole. Like, I still have people come up to me and say, like, I'm not going to get that Xbox One because I don't have a fast enough internet connection. It needs to be always online. And you're like, man, that stuck. Like, holy well, that, shit. And, and, that, and that was, like, really bad, uh, unpredictable timing, right? Because that was coming out just as Snowden was revealing <laughs> what was going on. Yeah, really. So the paranoid gamers, you know, were like, wow. Uh, my connect's gonna watch me yeah exactly and then uh you know people like us were like well you know they shut us out of the last generation what do we have to lose about complaining about how they're doing things now and the answer was nothing we've only got something to gain right yeah. so uh a number of developers got vocal and tried to do that in a way that would that would help uh in my opinion you know microsoft be coaxed into making better decisions for microsoft and the audience, right? And and really, that's the new uh, the new uh, way is businesses building businesses on top of businesses. Mm -hmm. So if you look back and back, you know, through history, a lot has changed. You know, right now we've got you know, look at how Zynga came out of nowhere, building on the business of Facebook. 
And those things, you know, it's just different. There's a book I'm, I'm trying to think. I think it was called Nudge, but I might have it wrong. And it was about how uh, the 21st century was really about, you know, giving APIs to other, you build something that's a platform and then you give APIs to other companies to build their businesses off of it. And so you're not trying to take the lion's share of anything. You're doing more of a Steam model. You go, hey, you got a good game and it's good enough to be on Steam. For 30% to us, you can put it up here and sell it everywhere we do. And that was like, whoa, you know, Steam really set the uh, 30 to 70% ratio where now the title holder gets 70%. And so even as other companies were coming in and starting digital distribution companies, they'd say, oh, and our split's going to be 60-40. And we'd be like, eh, precedent set by steam. We get 70%. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, the industry is dictated by precedents and comparables. So steam really set the mark in a great way. Gabe Newell, I think, is one of the most brilliant people that ever uh, crossed through this industry. So, so visionary and disciplined and a fanboy, you know, like literally, like, you, you want to talk about fan culture, man. That dude's hardcore. Yeah. You know, I thought I was into things like, you know, uh, certain types of movies and I'd start talking to him and it's like holy shit and he, he read <laughs> Japanese version of the comic book of it like he's oh, just yeah that's a new level of dedication <laughs> yeah yeah you know and the guy's a billionaire right so it's like whoa uh this is a very very interesting you know authentic guy Gabe Newell yeah and uh, and so you know I was trying to understand Gabe Newell as well and I'm up there trying to understand Steam better and how to design games for the future better and how to survive, you know, and this is like 207, 208, and I'm trying to fly up to Seattle to uh, pick Gabe's brain and get his opinion. And he was telling me things like, why don't you have your customers finance your game? And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, it was just totally unintuitive, man. I was like, what? And he, and, and he was saying things to me. I mean, I didn't get it at all, man. I mean, I, you know, it was just like, so out of the blue and I'm, and I'm the guy saying that wow i heard russell simmons in the 80s talking about how it was all going to be but gabe it had just turned into some whole other level of understanding and i'm now just struggling my brain is hurting sitting in the room listening to him going what does he really mean you know it was so alien and today uh uh i'm not saying we're masters of the science but it all makes sense and he was yeah. just far ahead of the curve and so now PS4, you know, Adam, Adam Boy, why don't you come with us? Uh, you guys got a great indie game. We want to be really good in indies. We're going to create the indie-friendly policy for uh, self-publishing. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. How much is the dev station? I, I don't know that we paid anything. I, they, I th yeah, he was, he was the one who got into Sony and said, why are we looking at dev stations as a revenue center? Let's give these damn things away, man. Our biggest problem is getting good content. Why are we creating friction for developers to create good content? Let's make it easier for them. Yeah. And, if I, and if the iPhone taught us anything, is that the big surprises might come out of a two-guy garage. Absolutely, right? yeah. I mean, and uh, so, so he started, he's the one who really, I think, uh, was the main force in getting the policy changed where they started giving the dev kits away. All of those things represent a big change. And then they're like, hey, would you like to be on the stage at E3? for the indie showcase, <laughs> you know, and I had pretty much been off the radar for a while. Doesn't mean I wasn't doing things, but I was off the radar, not, not taking center stage anywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like, sure. Are you kidding? You know, at what cost? And they were like, look, man, if, just give us a 30 day window before you release on another platform, you know, because if you're going to release simultaneously, we'd rather not have you on the stage. Yeah. And you go, you know, in terms of, I mean, we couldn't even get another title out 
<laughs> in three days anyway. So it was like, why wouldn't we do this? And when we did, um, the reception was just awesome. And the reception, you know, from the fan base was awesome. And actually from the community was awesome. And I think maybe there's a variety of different reasons for that. But one was, I think maybe we were always recognized as a developer that uh, whether, whether how wise we were at different points of our venting and ranting, um, I think we always spoke to our true reality and that reflected what a lot of developers' true reality was. Mm. And people were afraid to say those things. I mean, who wants to talk shit and, and, and uh, get people mad at them? And so I, I think because of the way we had come through time, you know, from the original triple A's and now we were self-publishing and, and uh, still, you know, building, in my opinion, some decent product, even though we weren't, we weren't completely into the new IP phase yet. All of those things converging, it was really a different time. So PS4 really represented, you know, sort of that, that next level of like, okay, you know, small teams can actually come back and have a chance on consoles. Yeah. But, you know, they have to think different about uh, price points. They have to do their own social marketing. They're going to have to do their own financing. They're going to have to do they're going to have to do all these things that developers didn't have to do before. They're going to have to become real uh, full 360 degree businesses. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of developers, they, they build games. They don't, they're not running businesses. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a whole new setup. Yeah. You, you, yeah. It's, it's kind of like filmmakers. You know, you know some very, very, very uh, uh, famous filmmakers, but they don't really run businesses. They're yeah. talents. And um, so all of those things were converging. It changed the landscape. And what Sony did, uh, I mean, you can remember that day, that day, E3 2013, Microsoft led in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the press came out of Microsoft and said, not bad. Yep. Not bad. And so all the thing, you know, and I remember, you know, Microsoft was feeling pretty good about it. Uh, but, but I knew because I had been in the green room all weekend at the backstage of Sony, what Sony was going to do in the evening. And it was like, oh, shit, man. Shit. <laughs> it's going to hit the fan tonight, you know. And, uh, and it did. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, and all of a sudden everyone flipped. And it was like Sony looked. Pretty, I mean, uh, Microsoft looked pretty good in the morning, but by night, there was trouble was big afoot. It right? was almost it, it, from a distance. So, you know, I was I went to all the press conferences that year. Uh, I it almost felt like Sony had watched Microsoft press Microsoft's press conference and said like, okay, like there's their price point. Let's cut it by a hundred, and there's their policy on uh, sharing games. Let's do the complete opposite. <laughs> but you were in the green room, so in, like in reality, this was planned before they even saw any of Microsoft stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But there's a couple of really, really uh, badass moves that took place. Right? <laughs> yeah. And now uh, I'll shine some light on it. One was, uh, I, I, one of the things was that Sony was, let's say, under Ken Kutaragi, Sony was not a very agile company. Mm. Meaning, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was, it, it was still like dealing with 20th century company rather than a 21st century company. Yeah. 21st century companies realized that having a multi-year plan is very difficult. You know, they need to be adapting uh, very rapidly. They need to be listening more and infiltrating more, you know, rapid development, agile yeah. development for all who knows what that means. And, and, and Sony was becoming an agile company and that was very difficult before when they were always getting approvals from Japan who didn't understand the game space. Hmm. So I think that was sort of the legacies of PS2 and PS3 era was that you were still dealing with the upper management at the corporation that didn't necessarily understand games. You know, it's still a consumer electronics driven uh, sort of entity. Well, now 
they're becoming more agile. And uh, so I remember that I, I think they made the pricing decision that day. Uh, okay. So I had a feeling. I think. But yeah. I do know this, you know, um, when all the friction was emerging about how hard they were making it for people to share games and uh, sell games and developers and, and for, you know, if you remember, one of the big blow up points from the gamers community was uh, I, you, Microsoft, you're not letting me share games. Like, that's bullshit, man. I, I bought the game. I should be able to give it to my friend. I shouldn't be, you know, like what? Like, they were really irate about that, the public. So in no time, Shu Yoshida and Adam Boyce put together that video clip. That video was fantastic, too. And they, and they shot it, like, right there. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was made that weekend. You never would have been able to get that through a big corporation like that in the 20th century business models. Yeah, they but just, it's, you know, it would be like oh, marketing department be like, we can't do that. You know, there's not a plan. How does that fit the plan? What's the, what's the CEO going to say? You know, we don't want. <laughs> oh no, no, no. And now they're like, hey, this is a killer. You know, we're going to respond, and here's a killer solution. Yeah. So that's the one where it's a, uh, <laughs> where they say, you know, you saw it. I mean, what's got 20 million views now or something? Yeah, it's that initial. This is how Sony is going to share games on a PS4, and she goes. Here and Adam goes. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and it was like slam dunk, right? It's it because cool. of that agile development mindset that the quick iteration, the you know, the the just the movement. We're like, hey, this this needs to change. Let's just change it instead of going through like you said all these different layers of business. It's like, no, this is a good idea. Let's do it. And exactly. And what they say, you know, the best plans are made to be broken, right? That, absolutely. You know, generals would show up if you look at the history of warfare. Generals would show up at the field with their bat battle plan. They'd look at it. The field didn't look exactly like they had predicted, but they stuck to the battle plan. They died. Yeah. Right. So you saw that happening and you really sort of became a believer that uh, this generation was going to be different. And, uh, you know, in a nutshell, it was. And the, what you could recognize and what had been proven in the app world, Android stores, iPhone stores, was, was if you're not getting featured, you need lots of advertising support. And if you're not getting featured and you don't have advertising support, you're going nowhere. Mm. And so the key to getting featured is you got to deliver great product. That's that's the real answer. I mean, you need to have, you know, some some politics, have some relationships, know who to talk to, all this stuff. But if you got a really great product, Apple's going to put it on their their store. They're going yeah. and not only on their store, but they're going to highlight it. And that, you know, ask any app developer, highlighting is the key. And so uh, I think, you know, so for us, we already understood, okay, we need to make really special product. We're not going to compete with the calls of duties and we're not going to compete with the battlefields. And, you know, that's just a whole different realm now. That's blockbuster territory, you know, hundreds of million dollar titles. We're, we're going to have a couple million dollars. How do we, how do we stay relevant? How do we do it? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on, you know, like grandma's cookies or something, you know, we're going to focus on really better tasting, you know, <laughs> and, uh, while it's lighter, it's going to have more heart and we're not going to have a bureaucracy of marketing company saying, well, you know, I think this little aspect offends uh, one niche of our demographic. So let's water it down like the blockbusters do. Mm. Uh, Instead, we were like, well, let's focus on those people who really want those old kind of classic retro beauty, heart and games, humor. You know, let's 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 squeeze that harder and uh, and then maybe we can shine. And if we can shine, then we'll be highlighted. Yeah. And it worked out. I mean, the first real case of that in the in the, in the current generation was us even being asked to be on that stage and two over two years ago. And uh, uh, as time went on. 
that's what we hang our hat on is if we can make something quality enough, then it's in the interest of a network to promote it because they will make some money on it. Yeah. And if we can, and if we can be such where as a small self-published indie, someone at, you know, uh, our developers, uh, representatives, whoever, you know, at these different companies, they can go into their managers and their bosses and say, look, last year, you know, my division, booked 20 million in revenue and one of those millions came from these guys then you're you know now there's real interest for people to help support you in those companies because they're actually making money on it even though you're not a first party even though you're not just paying licensing manufacturing you know fees you're you're actually you know in this truly digitally distributed 21st century landscape and that changed everything and it's been wonderful yeah. So uh, summarizing, you know, I think you asked me one question. <laughs> it's just like we used all our time to answer. But, uh... Yeah. And I mean, going back quickly to Sony. So you had mentioned before that you, know, you look at the PS1 and the PS2 is this kind of sales monster. It's on top. And uh, you mentioned kind of like the attitude between Sony and the developers. And it was not exactly a great relationship. And the PS3 comes out. And while it's a success, it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's not the winner of that generation. Uh, and it was not seen as the winner. Now the PS4 is, you know, comfortably back on top. The leadership is more excited. It's, it's a much better landscape. Is there any fear or do you think there could be a point where Sony gets so far ahead that it at all starts reverting back to those tendencies of the PS2 and the PS3 where they're in the lead, they start making the calls a little bit more and that uh, friendly environment between developer and console manufacturer starts seeing some tension or do you feel the leadership right now with adam boys uh with Shu, with cause harai is strong yeah, enough yeah, and they're he, smart you enough shoe's real important role right yeah shoe and shoe is really about good games mm-hmm. right shoe's not about look it's a business we need to we need to cut back on this title i mean he, he is you know the guy's brilliant but uh He's really about art form, you know, kind of like Ed Freeze was like that too. How do we expand the art form? Let's, let's be supportive of creative innovations, you know? And so Sony was even cooking things in their own labs that were pretty off the hook. You know, some of those best game of the year awards went to not necessarily the best sellers, but definitely, you know, some truly loved and cherished games by the community. And, uh, but here's what I think. What I think is in big organizations, so I'm not speaking to anything specific inside Sony as much as trends, you know, and, uh, you know, basically social politics. Any big organizations had the people who fought to be progressive and the people who fought to keep it the old way. What is the ratio of numbers of who had what and what management positions are they in? And what often happens in big companies is the people who blazed that success the people who missed it that were fighting for something else, they're now usually trying to figure out how to take that success. Mm-hmm. I think what, what can happen is with success, you know, comes more of a tendency to have greater control. And, uh, but that's not what brought them there now, right? It wasn't having greater control that put them in this position. And so as long as the leadership at the stop, at the sorry at the top stays in place i think um it's at least going to stay cognizant of what got it there and to be like look we own playstation one we own playstation two we lost in playstation you know we took we, we didn't 
win number one in PlayStation 3. We won again in PlayStation 4. Why are we going to go back to PlayStation 3 lessons? Yeah. You know, which lessons should we be taking? So hopefully all that takes place. But you got to remember, you know, people are people, right? So someone's still pissed off they didn't get their way. And then they're more pissed off because the people that did succeeded. So now what they got to try and do is make it look like they're the ones that succeeded and get more control of those divisions that the other people blazed. The other people tend to be more entrepreneurial. So, you know, like Seamus Blackley or something, you know, after the Xbox One comes off, he feels like his job's done there. Right. Mm-hmm. So that means that those roles get inherited by uh, second tiers and those second tiers can see things differently and fuck things up. Yeah. You know, look at Microsoft today. Right. Uh, and I'm speaking about the larger Microsoft and uh, because I, I'm believers in the guys running the Xbox today. In fact, I, I got a uh, I just got a message yesterday from Phil uh, Spencer. Yeah, he seems great. Like ever since he's taken over, yeah. it's they've headed in a very positive direction. Well, that's why you sent me a thank you. It was a, a, a game giant bomb. Yeah. Did an article yesterday. I don't know if you saw it. And uh, it just basically said, you know, uh, Lawrence says Phil Spencer is more like shoe than Don Matrick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, but my point is, if you read that article, you see how I feel about Microsoft and its management today. So if you look at Microsoft today, you go, how does the company? I'm not talking about Xbox. Yeah. I mean, you know, basically Microsoft Steve, as a whole. Steve Ballmer's Microsoft, mm-hmm. even though he's not running it now, but they're still living with the legacy of his role. Uh, how does a company that owned personal computing OS like a monopoly, how do they later not really, how, you know, I've heard uh, uh, venture capitalists explain to me, they said, if you want to understand Microsoft online, imagine you built condos to fit a million people, but you couldn't rent them. So you're paying people to live in them. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, what? And they were like, that's how much money they're spending just to keep online. Like <laughs> stay on. And, it, and you know, I'm careful in that quote. I don't want to be, you know, create some uh, headline that's going to make me cringe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the point being is that where are they in the mobile space? Where are they in the social space? Where are they in the Internet shopping space? Where are they? You know, across the board, they're having a lot of troubles really, uh, you know, it's still enormously profit. They still have the OS that's driving the business world. They still, they own what, 25% of Apple. So it's not like black and white, but at least that's the last time I remember. Uh, How do they keep on missing it when they have the most resources? Mm. You know, so you have to ask yourself those questions, right? What happens? How is a culture shaped that it, it, it has problems, you know, sticking with the new world? And this is really the history of industry, right? What happens is, Organizations get big. As they get big, they get fat. As they get fat, they're harder to move around. They're less agile. And someone younger and leaner comes and, you know, basically steals their wife. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, you know, uh, I hope that doesn't happen to Sony. I don't have fears that it will. But human nature is human nature. You never know. You know, Uh, one guy can come in. uh, I don't think it'll happen to Sony because I don't see Shu Yoshida going anywhere. But, yeah, I hope not. Uh, but, you know, cultures of large populations, people, you got thousands and thousands of employ- employees. There's many inertias that, that, you know, might win and, and you can't predict which ones they are. But you hope they keep to the, uh, the policies that are, that are getting them there. And, uh, and the world is changing so rapidly in this kind of way that it's hard to imagine anyone going back. Yeah. 
No, I, I agree. And, you know, like you said, it's they should continue to do what's working for them. I, I don't see why they would suddenly say, like, you know what didn't work for us is doing all the stuff we did in the PS3. Let's just do that again. Um, and Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and like you said, indies, indies have been a big part of this conversation and a big part of that initial push for Sony, that initial goodwill that they got. But where do you kind of see AAA games at this point? Because during the PS2 time... Uh, you could see kind of there was you know, smaller games, not as much as, of course, as there are today. And there was this kind of B-tier level. And then there were a lot of AAA games. And over the course you know, of the past two generations, a lot of those B-tier games are gone. We see a whole bunch of indie games and this big glut of AAA games at the top. But, to but it's eight, not even that much of a glut. Yeah, because well, a lot of those companies... I mean, you look at, I think it was the, the, the new, latest Tomb Raider, not the one that's coming out Tuesday, but the one before the 2012 release, yeah. where that comes out, it seems like this hit, it's making millions of dollars, but still the publisher is like, well, you know, not as much as we expected, just because games cost in a crazy amount of money to make, and it's only going up. Where do you kind of see big budget AAA development going? Do, do you think it can get to a point where it's, you know, just Call of Duty, Madden, and those sort, sort of titles? Because if you... Well, it already is, right? I mean, I guess at this point it's getting close because if you miss one no, big it miss, it already is. Let's, let's let's take titles that are hundred million dollars or more. Right? Who can afford to play? Right? When C when CAA was starting a game division, you know, uh, not a game. Well, yeah, a game division of agents. Right? Hmm. Um, you know, CAA, Creative Artists Agency, right? Yeah. Largest uh, talent agency in Hollywood. You know, you mention a famous Tom in Hollywood, and he's represented by CAA. Right? Regardless which one, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, you know, doesn't matter. Right? And uh, it they started it with the belief of hey look you know hollywood's got all these players all these investors you know it's entertainment none of them are eating any of the game space none of them are feasting on any of the game space how do we bring alternative financing to great developers to get uh basically bring some some different shake up to the industry and uh, let's start some new publishers that think this way. You know, in some ways, Brash, if you remember the creation of Brash, was founded on, you know, uh, people like Larry Shapiro uh, trying to working with people like uh, who owns Legendary Pictures, is uh, Thomas Tull, and saying, look, you know, we can build higher quality branded movie games, but we shouldn't just be releasing shitty branding movie games. <laughs> yeah, really? that, was, that was the idea of Brash. It was a good, it was a good idea, actually. And... Uh, but they didn't didn't make it, you know. But Thomas Tall, shit, man, he's still got how many killer blockbuster movies out there that come out every year? Quite a few. Yeah, he's a major guy and a smart guy. But basically, even CAA couldn't bring alternative financing to the game industry. Think of that. Wow. Right. Imagine that, and they couldn't, man. And I'm they couldn't, and I can tell you that. Will Wright could tell you that. Warren Spector could tell you that. Tim Schafer can tell you that. Yeah. You know. I'm not dinging CAA. I'm just telling you how hard it is when you do the, the business projections to tell someone else to come into an industry, spend hundreds of millions of dollars and why they're going to succeed. Instead, people like Barry Dillish like that, they might be interested and then they do a good analysis on it and they go, it doesn't make sense. It's too high risk. It's too hit driven. Right? So now what do you have? You have uh, genres in the space that you know for a fact X uh, uh, shooters you know, multiplayer shooter campaign based type games are going to, to grasp X number of billions of dollars next year. And that is on the table. Someone is going to take it. And now if you're, you know, uh, 
another you know, brutally smart, brilliant guy in the industry, if you're Bobby Kotick, you're going, what does it take for us to secure the taking of that? And that's like a, a rock star looking at Grand Theft Auto, right? Yep. We're going to spend, what'd they say? 500 million? That's what it was, yeah. In development. And we're going to do it right. We're not going to milk the brand. These are the lessons of history. You know, uh, we're, we are going to keep on surprising the audience. We're going to make it great, you know. So they kept the spirit of what kept that property great and they enhanced it, right? GTA 5? Mm -hmm. oh my God. Right? Yeah. It's insane. Who's going to compete with that? Nobody, right? So they, when they say we're going to bring half a billion dollars in development, uh, that's an enormous number and everyone's listening. It's already a great franchise. Everyone's listening. Now that means, well, wait a minute. If you're bringing half a billion to, to development, what are you doing for promotion? Right? So in Hollywood, they go, eh, 50% of the budget of the movie is the, is the market, in, meaning we're going to spend at least that in marketing. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes the marketing spend is almost as much as the development spend. And that's why we see billboards of all the biggest shit all over the place. Right? <laughs> yeah. And people used to tell me, well, you know, big brands, you know, sell themselves. I said, really? Then why do the biggest sequels have the biggest marketing campaigns? Yeah, really? Right? Like, don't give me that shit, guys. Bullshit. <laughs> You're still spending more on the thing you think is a sure bet than you are on the thing that's new, you know? And <clears throat> so it's a big boy's game. It's a big player's game out there in that uh, premier, you know, blockbuster space. So the game industry... Everyone else was afraid to come in and really start publishing. Thomas Tull had the guts. I mean, some other things emerged and collapsed. I wasn't that intimate with any of them, but everyone was afraid of it. I mean, you're talking, you know, the Hollywood guys, right? The big directors, how many have designed a successful game? None. Yeah. Including Spielberg, who's tried. Uh, why? Well, it's a different way of thinking entirely. It's a voodoo science. It's not, as I've told these guys, the movie producers, the film directors, you know, and, and I don't want to list the names, but it'd be a real name dropping moment. You know, <laughs> what I've told them is you guys, you're, you're master auteurs and you're going to work in, in a game and you're going to think it works the same way where you can show up, hold your high standard, yell and scream, points of producers, whatever. If one team's not working out, fire them and bring another one in. You, you're not going to operate that way in this industry. This is not mastery of artistic, you know, uh, vision. This is mastery of compromise against technology that has to run in real time. You might have a vision, but if you want to stick to it and not be agile like you do in films, you know, you're going to stick to your vision in that film and stomp and cry and be James Cameron on a set and scream and fire people. Mm. You know, you're not going to last in game industry 10 minutes because yeah. it, it's a team sport. And as a team sport, you know, uh, this is part of why you hear less about individuals on these big title properties is because it really is in many ways more of a big collective team sport effort rather than one guy's vision who's going to you know, shape it this way or that. And but films are very different. So these guys aren't used to compromising. I mean, I sat in a room with a very famous director once. I won't say his name. And he was making a film. And they wanted to do, this was for legend, you know, through uh, Ration Legendary mm -hmm. uh, and CAA. And said, well, why don't we, um, you know, meet with this guy. He wants to do a film out of his movie. It's a big movie. It's a big name. And so I meet with him and I'm like, and he's telling me all his ideas. 
It's kind of like how I thought about game design before I first got into the industry, which is like, well, you know, RTS has some great stuff going on and so does RPG and so does action. Let's combine them all. <laughs> yes. And you're like, and that's when you learn, you know, very, in a very rude awakening that there's a reason these genres are segregated. Yeah. It's called performance. Make your pick because you're only going to get so many cycles of, of tech, you know, chip performance. Mm. And I'm trying to tell the guy, uh, you got to pick and choose what's actually going to make a great experience. Why? And his answer was always, why? Why? Why can't it be this? No, I think it should be this and this and this. And I looked at him and I recognized that thing in the eye. When I used to be uh, in visual effects in the film business, that thing in the eye where the director would just come in and hold his vision. And look, at times I was the same way. And just say, no, we're going to go here. And I'm going to take you places you don't think you can get to. And we're on this ride together. And, and trust me, and I'll beat it out of you, basically. Yeah. And uh, I left that room going... Good luck, guys. I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I was kind to the director, but I left the room to the people who brought me there, and I said, good luck, guys. I'll never work with that guy ever. Yeah. And uh, they were like, what do you mean? He's this and that. I go, he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking <laughs> And he's going to be a total asshole to work with. And any project you get involved with inter interactive, if he's the creative person uh, dictating what it's going to be, you're fucked and you're going to lose your money. Mm -hmm. And they did. So... Uh, to me, it was like, yeah, the big name, it, it doesn't really matter because, man, if you don't understand this stuff, uh, you're just going to be dead. And it's an entirely different beast. So, you know, we can count on one finger, less than one finger, how many film, successful film directors have direct, designed successful games. But how many have wanted to is a pretty big list of big names. And so that's a big difference about the medium. So getting back to games and the big blockbusters. If you know, I mean, I think the Call of Duty spaces, the Battlefield spaces, the uh, uh, Madden, all that stuff, providing, you know, Madden wants to keep on leasing his name for millions of dollars and do nothing. <laughs> really? Um, those franchises aren't going anywhere because the, the, the audience is, it, it, it's a pattern that they've come to expect. They want the games to get better. The idea of pushing out brands that are crappy games, sequels, uh, you know, Atari was the first one who shot that in the head with uh, E.T., right? Yep. You know, who else is going to want to go in there and combat it? And they know that there's X number of dollars to be made. There's X number of gamers that are going to buy the latest, greatest shooter next year. And so they know, they go, there's X amount of billions that are going to be made. We're going to spend a billion to get it. We know what we're doing. And... Um, Good luck if you want to compete against this. So you might have Activision, EA, and you know one other player, two other players that can actually uh, perform in that space. And, uh, and they're going to go if they're going head to head. They're trying not to go head to head. So they're going well. If they're going to release in Christmas, let's us release in the summer. Uh, let's do 100 million dollar marketing around it. Who's going to come in and and say we want to do that too, and we're going to go against you? Yeah, you know, not not very many people, but exactly. Does this... and I was there not that long after Bobby uh, bought Activision. Yeah, and yeah, that's a smart dude, man. Yeah, you it... you don't you don't want to bet against Bobby Cody. Does this model kind of constrict creativity or inspire it? More money always constricts creativity because with more money means you have to have a wider audience which means you have to be looking at market research which means you have to be filtering out things that are going to turn off segments of the market you know so in some ways it tends to be more watered down if you have a brand like gta 5 they tend to water it up 
<laughs> yeah, know? really, to just the shock factor in certain ways. Expect from the brand, you know. But are you going to hear the uh, Call of Duty guys, you know, swearing at each other and stuff in the in the you know really getting hardcore? I, I doubt it. You know, that's not what that brand's about. But my my point is is that. They're, they're alone out there in aiming for this space. And it's kind of like the movie Blockbuster Space. There's only a few players that are going to spend a billion dollars in, in the production and in the marketing to go out there to capture two billion. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, but they know that if they do it right, they pretty much secured that capture. Mm-hmm. And then they've got the built-in fan base. They've got, they've got the infrastructure. They've got the stores. They've got the digital stores. They've got the physical distribution. They've got the retail shelves. You know, how are you going to go in there and fight with these guys? You're going to lose. And everyone's smart enough, and the big media players that were smart enough recognized that they were going to lose. And so these captains that we have today you know, of, of the publishing realm, and you can you know, literally count them on one hand, uh, I don't see them going anywhere. And with all these uh, huge budget things coming in, you're more in the blockbuster space. And you can listen to the complaints in the film industry from all the creatives, the writers, the directors, in the game industry about what happens when it becomes a blockbuster. And, uh, you know, so you can't afford to try to innovate at high prices in a major way. You can't afford to try and be revolutionary, you know, at at a multi $100 million development spend. You have to be intelligently evolutionary. And what you got to do for to be revolutionary, something just totally out of the box, is you got to do it cheap. Yeah. You got to do it cheap. You got to find out if people want to actually do it. And then if it works, you got to nurture it. And the best example of that is Minecraft. Oh, yeah. Geez, without a doubt. Right. And so just something that's not chasing. I mean, you know, he just took it completely in his own direction, which is he wasn't chasing good graphics. He wasn't chasing any of that. He was chasing a different. What, what would players like to do? How would they like to share? And, you know, in the beginning, it was laughed at, as several uh, executives from different big publishers have said, you know, no one wanted to touch this game in the beginning. No one wanted to help. No one believed in it. You know, and then at the end of the day, everyone's trying to take them to the prom. And uh, so that's a good example. Innovations, and this is what was happening in the PS3 era, you know, just using it to identify the era, not speaking specifically to PS3, but... Because Xbox 360 was a more difficult system to build for than the Xbox, mm. just FYI, right? And so what, what, what was happening was that it was becoming, in my opinion, blockbuster only. And until the real digital distribution, uh, you, you didn't have chances for smaller innovations. And innovations need to take place in small doses. Find out if people like it. Don't bet the whole bank on it. You know, I used to think, I was like, man, I'm just, you know... I want to be a real star player and put me up to a plate and it's going to be grand slams. You know, let's swing for the fence, man. Let's just build big hits, you know. Mm. And then I got educated to how business works, really. I mean, I was raising, lot, you know, millions of dollars back in the early 90s. But that doesn't mean, you know, but I wasn't a Stanford business grad. Right? It wasn't an MBA out of the Ivy League. Mm. And that's what you're dealing with now. You, you, you're dealing with really smart people. And so... Uh, on a, on a small level, you got to figure out, I, I had to sort of swallow the fact of it's not about being the biggest. It's, it's about being clever and surviving and sticking true to what you believe is good and what you believe you want to do. What's going to make you happy working on, you know, how, how does it work? And what I decided was uh, I wanted to have Oddworld be in a, what you would call in film an above the line company. That means uh, less of a development studio 
and more of, uh, in the film sense, a, a, a development studio in film means like a bad robot, a Jerry Bruckheimer. Uh, companies that are, I'm calling it above the line, they write the packages, they design them, but when they go into production, they, they contract out to all the other companies that do production. They don't build their own production teams, you know? And that wasn't really happening in games for a lot of reasons, not to get into it here, a lot of them technological, different engines, six month ramp ups for talent to understand how to work your code and tools. All those kinds of things made the game industry very hard to do things like that. But engines are getting more standardized, you know, UE4, uh, Unity, these things meant that more people understood the same software environments. And now you could have more uh, sort of small teams that are working together. Like at times, you know, I'm contracting to three different time zones around the world yeah. for one thing. And you couldn't do that 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So the innovations are taking place in small pockets. And because of digital distribution, you can actually get it out there. Now it's up to that developer to bring the eyeballs, to bring attention to it. No one else is going to do it. You don't have a publisher who's trying to recoup their money. Now you're on your own and you, and you got to learn how to do it. Right. Mm. And, uh, you know, at the GDCs and things, I get together with uh, young developers, young star developers that got their own indie shops and, and, uh, and try to help them understand these types of things and how they can you know, survive better and the lessons we've learned, you know, things like that. So there's the opportunity to break out that new stuff, but it's not going to happen at the big budget level because it's too risky. And if you have a public company, I think you're dumb to try and do it because your stocks are going to get hit, you know, all kinds of ramifications. So really, it's fascinating because the innovations are not going to come from the big games. They're going to come from the little surprises. And those little surprises are going to be the big games in 10 years from now. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, the people who hit it right, they're going to nurture it. They're going to understand their audience. They're going to understand. I'll give you a good example. Uh, someone started explaining to me years ago. They go, look, man, you got to understand YouTubers, your new Fox News, your new MTV. Instead really of buying airtime, what you need to do is you need to you know, romance YouTubers. You need to do this. You need to do that. So we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, on last release, we got YouTuber support with up to like uh, uh, six, seven million followers. How do we get YouTuber support to 30 to 40 million followers for this game? Like that's on our map of what we do. Not how do we get a better partnership that's going to give us more advertising money? Mm -hmm. We're saying how do we get more visibility? Because the indie today is going to live or die based on their ability to capture their own audience, their own mailing list, their own followers on Facebook, on Twitter, on here, on there. And I think Bioware was one of the original ones at the very first DICE conference. Sorry to be a little schizophrenic. In that. No, you're fine. Okay. Bioware, the very first DICE conference, if you go back and watch those talks, Bioware was talking about how they already had a million emails of people that were coming to their websites. And before one penny in advertising would be spent in the next, next, on that next game they were going to release, they could count on a million sales. And that was really like game-changing thinking. You know, yeah. uh, what was the name? Uh, Cook, Dane Cook, the comedian. Yeah. You know, whether or not you think he's funny, I'm not a big fan. But that guy nurtured his MySpace page to the point where when he released a new comedy CD, he sold a million units. Yeah, just based off of social media presence. Yeah. Uh, you know, so now we look at, you know, everyone in this industry wants Pudai Pie, right? Yeah. Everyone, the biggest guys, you, if you went up to EA and said, hey, we can get Pudia Pie to feature you better, they'd be like, really? How? <laughs> right? Because that's the power that someone who nurtured their own audience now has if they did it well. And whatever, you know, he's the highest paid YouTuber. Point is, the guy's disciplining always is producing content. It's always consistent. 
I personally, I think a lot of it has to do with that absolutely gorgeous girlfriend that he's got. It doesn't hurt. That's just painful to look at. Man. <laughs> My God, right? But as an example, you got, you know, I don't know how many people are behind the scenes there, but the dude built his own business. And now everyone wants, you know, just like in Notch's pants, they all want his pants too. And uh, for, you know, Notch from Minecraft, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, so the key is, you know, you really got to nurture your own audience. And if you did Silicon Valley ventures in this sort of digital sp uh, space and social space, to which we did on, a, on an effort that didn't make it, but it really caused us to have to learn a lot of what was going on in this new environment where you didn't have big marketing campaigns, but you had big numbers. And, uh, and that's what, by the time PS4 came along, that's what I recognized Adam Boys was doing and an influence, I'm not saying it was the only influence, but an influence at Sony where he was bringing that knowledge set and a lot of AAA developers and a lot of game developers didn't understand it yet, you know, because they're still thinking in that old AAA way. Like, how do we get a big budget to get a game? If we can just get greenlit, then we can have our own studio. You know, all these dreams that wind up being nightmares. Uh, I saw that from what I had learned in Silicon Valley sciences in, you know, since uh, 2006, 2007, uh, I saw that he was actually applying them here. And I, and I was a big believer. You know, the blockbusters aren't going away there's going to be a couple giants that fight it out mm -hmm. uh, out of the losses is going to become new engine technologies that some team goes away and makes like uh, I don't know the full story, but look at riot games. Yeah. You know, they had, because they had that, they were building up that technology. They were able to do something in a free to play way that had more money into it. The more people were spending in fleet free to play as development or publishers. And it wound up with some secret sauce that boom, you know, what Wall Street firm didn't wish they were invested in Riot Games? Today. Yeah, it's massive now. Yeah, and uh, so uh, you know this goes across across the board, right? Gearbox. There's, so more and more independence coming out of you know creative small ventures, but they got to start small. The old dream of I'm going to be a director, I'm going to move to Hollywood, I'm going to get a big deal. If you got that dream in the game space, the music space, the television space, or the film space. It really is that. It's a dream. Yeah. And it's probably never going to come true. So, you know, one of the pills I had to swallow was don't worry about having the biggest sales. Get that ego bullshit out of it, you know, out of yourself. Instead, just build a smart business where you can have more fun, you know. And, and quite frankly, I didn't have a lot of fun through the first 10 years of development. In fact, it was a fucking nightmare, man. Yeah. It was hard as shit. It was, Kotaku just did an article on uh, a Japanese CEO at a game company, and they talked about his daily schedule, and they're wondering, how does the guy stay alive? And uh, the truth is, this shit will put you in an early grave. But uh, I'm calling a friend after this call to talk about his heart attack. You know, And this is a guy who's in perfect shape, but he's hardcore intense, You know, owns a developer, etc. So if you figure out, you know, like if you want to be Spielberg, you know, maybe you got to be uh, Michael Bay instead. Right. And Michael Bay will tell you, hey, I make, you know, I make movies for teenage boys. So shoot me. And, uh, uh, you know, but it's not those films we're going to look back on the way we look back on uh, Bullet Train or uh, Airplane, uh, you know, Airport. 77 or they're going to feel very dated because they're very superficial. Yeah. Right. But we're going to go back and we're going to watch Kubrick films and we're still going to be like, how did he shoot this in the sixties? Mm -hmm. Right. Cause they're just going to be timelessly deep and beautiful and intelligent.
and you know codes to unravel. Whereas none of that's in, in a lot of the latest blockbusters, right? So it's all about that more of that short-term gratification rather than depth, you know. And I, I Kubrick is my favorite filmmaker of all time. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's harder for those guys to exist today unless they start shooting digitally and figuring out how to shoot a movie for two million dollars. Yeah, and you know, like you've been saying the entire time, it's that innovation at a smaller scale that you know even makes Sony's moves uh, two, three, four years ago with the PS4 seem even smarter because. You know, that's where that small innovation starts and that's where something like Minecraft can be born. That's where something like League of Legends and Riot can be born. And, you know, yeah. you're, not, you're yeah. not starting at this giant spot. You're starting small <laughs> and you catch on. And, you know, exactly. it's, it makes yep. the AAA space odd, but still exciting for the smaller space. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, there's, um, there's, uh, there's a game I'm really looking forward to and, and I'm envious of, of the cleverness that they did. And that's Cuphead. Oh, absolutely. That game's gorgeous, too. And, and I look at that and I go, man, this is brilliant. You know, I don't know how good it plays. I hope it plays great. But what's brilliant is they took that old, like, Fleshinger, originally, you know, early era 20s animation, uh, 20s and 30s animation uh, style and put it in the game for the first time in a way that felt like that old style. They took meaning if they if they stick to that, I don't know the developers you know uh, i can't wait for the game i watched the trailer 30 times <laughs> if they stick to that model they can own that space mm -hmm. which means they can become the company that takes what was you know antique classic entertaining totally out of time retro signature and own it without having had created created it yep. you know this is what is a problem with disney they went after things like uh snow white and uh and the seven dwarves uh uh or or various different myths you know aladdin right mm -hmm. and you can't copyright that stuff so so they'd create these big ips i mean they're still you know gigantic you know titan of industry you know, the largest five media companies on the planet an empire but one of the things you know joe carey who founded uh funded gt interactive another billionaire carey brothers they own Good Times Home Video Distribution. They're the ones that got GT Interactive to have the Walmart deal, where, where if EA wanted to sell in Walmart, they had to go through GT Interactive. <laughs> you know, I remember that day, you know. Yeah. Uh, but Joe Carey's model in the film distribution company was he'd be like, he told me one day, he goes, here's what I'm doing. <laughs> and he's, you know, these guys are like, you know, they're just <laughs> really intense guys. You know, everything in life is negotiation. He goes, so Disney's marketing, uh, I don't remember the exact picture, but he said, that's, that's an old fable. You can't trademark that. So you can't keep me from coming out with the same picture on the same day as a video sale at Walmart for $9.99 <laughs> at the cash register. I've never and, thought about that. And you're going to spend, Disney's going to spend $400 million marketing it for me. And so he would hire like Oprah to do a voice on a CG animated film that he would spend three, four million dollars on. And it would be writing the marketing campaign of a Disney picture that's coming out that's going to be, you know, a hundred million dollar animated film. And so, he, I mean, you talk, wow. you, know, you know, just like, you know, whatever you think of that model, <laughs> it was brilliant, man. Really? Yeah. He, he was like, well, how do I ride other promotions? where they can't really protect the IP because they're playing on uh, public domain, right? God, that's smart. 
Yeah, yeah. So if someone was coming out uh, now with a new one called, you know, Peter Pan, I think Peter Pan is public domain, I, I believe. Yeah, probably. That, right? I would think so. An old myth, you know, Grimm Brothers, uh, Brothers Grimm or something like that. If some big, big company was coming out, we got, you know, half a billion dollar uh, uh, Hansel and Gretel title coming out, I can create a Hansel and Gretel title for a million dollars and make it look like the one you're promoting. <laughs> And beat you to the counter because you're going to wait three months to get uh, sell your uh, videos. And, I, and you know, I'm going to kind of confuse the audience. But let's face it, our audience is going to be four-year-olds anyway. Mm. And they don't give a shit. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like brilliant, man. Art of war kind of brilliant, you know. Yeah. That's why these guys are billionaires. You know, Carey Brothers is not to be messed with. Yeah. But, uh, and at the time I met them, I think they were worth like $300 million. Now it's billions. So anyway, you know, for whatever those fables are worth, uh, you know, <laughs> clever things that people are doing. But Cuphead has that opportunity for that developer can, if I were there, I would say, guys, we got something. We hit, we, we, we can take that classic animation style and anytime someone sees it on a screen, they know it's us. And if we just make it great, you know, we make it great and then the sequels are coming, we can own this genre and we didn't even create it. We uh, took yeah. the street, you know? And uh, so in my respect, I think it's really clever and brilliant that way. Yeah, I'm so excited. I really hope I get the opportunity to review that game. I need to like contact someone and be like, put me on this one. I really want to play this thing. I want to see how this turns out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer uh, because I know you have other things to do today. But uh, when I had tweeted out that I was going to be talking to you, I just got a flood of people who wanted to ask you questions. So I have a few uh -huh. here, just really quick hits. So the first one is from Jonathan Fallows. Hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, okay. And he wanted to know if there's any chance of a colorblind mode for new and tasty since he says he's struggling a little bit to see the minds within the game. You know, this is a dilemma of technology. Mm -hmm. If if you recall, it, it's like these things like that we wanted to, we would love to accommodate. And I'll give you one story. Uh, we have a game, the guy who played Abe's Exodus perfectly rescued all 300 Mudokans. He's legally blind. Yeah. But the way he was able to play it, he, he thanked us. And then we, we, uh, we found out who he was. And, you know, TV stations did interviews with him. And this is an engineering student who is, I'm talking, not, not 80%. He's blind. Wow. 100%. And so we thought it was bullshit. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do you do that? This is a hard game, man. Go read the complaints about how hard our games are. Yeah. And he sent us this letter saying, just thank you so much because – you paid attention to the panning, you know, the sound effects. I could tell where he was on the screen from the left and right. I could, I could count because it was a very sort of digitally staged game, meaning it's 20 steps across the screen. Mm -hmm. It was this many steps got you killed. This, as you move from left to right, panning would occur. He was like, thank you so much for the detailed sound in this game. I can play it. Sometimes I get stuck and I ask someone to come help me. But beyond that, and then he sent us videos of him doing it. Wow. And he said, the infinite lives, you know, like, like he, because he could have a chance, he just stuck to it. I don't know how many hours it took him to do, but he beat that game perfectly and he was blind. Man. Right. But I don't, but who's going to make a game for a blind man? What is the size of that market? So it's tough. It's tough. And you want to, uh, and, and what I'm saying is we didn't make that game for any handicap. We just tried to make a really quality experience that emulated more of what we expect from films. 
As a result, someone with a handicap was able to play it better than other games. And that is a really interesting phenomenon. But the thing is, is it's all development costs. Yeah. So, you know, is what is Apple and Android doing to accommodate that problem? And the answer is not much. Mm-hmm. The answer is because uh, not that they don't want to. You know, remember when Tim Cook was on the stage of uh, at, at an investor conference and the uh, conservatives wanted him to commit that it was a profit driven company first before all and other things. And he told him basically sell your stock and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yes. And that was a beautiful thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he said, no more. We will never commit to that. No more. I'm, I'm going to bastardize what he said because I don't remember the quote exactly, but it was very admirable. He said, uh, we are going to be focused on profit only. No. And we are not going to say we are not going to develop for the hearing impaired. We are not going to develop for this and that. You know, he started identifying things that they would like to do that are not going to be profit driven ventures, but they want to include a, a wider variety of humanity. And it was kind of a, you know, that was what you want from a company, right? And I think his stock shot up the next day <laughs> rather than get hammered, you know? Yeah. And, but the point is, you know, you go, how is colorblind being addressed in mobile devices that there's several billion of out there right now? And the, it's not that anyone wants to turn away, but when you look at how decisions are made in industry, they slice towards what's the demographic, how many, what's the development cost uh, versus how many more uh, units are going to be sold. And what I think would be great, and we're not there yet, we are not there yet, but that you could count on enough of a profit where you could start investing more in um, different, because I'm not addressing the, the uh, colorblind question exactly mm-hmm. as much as I'm addressing handicap questions yeah. and how it's affecting technology development or not. And what we're saying is it should, and it should. Uh, but that's how it's going to, it's always going to be cost versus rewards. Hopefully we get to a point where we're just like, we understand those sciences better. So what I would say is I would say, look, well, and my question back, uh, is because I don't necessarily understand color blindness that well, but I know red is a particular problem. Yeah. And, uh, red and greens, I think are very difficult to distinguish from one another typically, but different people have different cases. And you know, I'd say, well, what else could we do to address that? So we're not building a special component, but that in general, we can design the whole game where it actually addresses that problem. Can I address, uh, you know, and then they'd say, look, uh, well, you know what? Okay, you can't address the color problem, but why don't you have, if it's blinking red, why don't you have it be blinking a square? And if it's blinking green, why don't you have it be blinking a uh, oh. blink circle? Yeah, so not a colorblind right. mode as much as a game that doesn't need one because it has uh, kind of in-game solutions. Right, so we make, we're able to make them more colorblind friendly, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and the truth is, it's the first time I've thought about that. And that's my immediate creative response is like, help, help, help tell us how we can do it. Yeah. Uh, so that it's not on its own uh, development path, but how it would work for you. And if you tell us that, and, and basically it doesn't compromise the majority this experience, but it helps a larger majority have the experience, then we'd be dumb not to do it. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. So, so I wish we lived in a world that took these issues more seriously. I wish we could get government grants to say, you know what, if you address, uh, 
the paraplegics, if you address the blind and if you address the hearing impaired, and you know, there's a whole variety of illnesses out there, we'll help uh, compensate your product. Mm-hmm. We'll help with some grants. We'll help. To my best of my knowledge, this country's not working that way largely. Yeah, but I mean, just like you said, the, the idea you had right there off the cuff sounds like a yeah. good solution. So that, I mean, it's a smart way to think about it. And so I invite that and I invite those answers, you know, yeah. I, I, I ask it as an open question and to anyone listening, I invite those answers and I can tell you we'll be listening. All right. That's great. Um, I have one more question I can ask you right here. Uh, this yeah. is from Amber Hall on Twitter and uh, this person would like to know kind of about your voice acting in your games because they had said that no one really in any interviews asks you enough about the voice acting you do for Oddworld. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I, I was a huge fan of Jim Henson. Yeah. I was a huge fan of Mel Blanc, right? Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mel Blanc, I, I would watch that guy as a kid and I'd be like, how's he do it? <laughs> you know, like he was just unbelievable. And uh, as a kid, let me say some people have what I call a mockingbird gene. Like if I'm in a room or I go to another country, I am not trying to imitate anyone, but I start speaking with that damn accent, you know? <laughs> yes. And I can't help it, man. It's not my fault. You know, it's it's really and I've met other people like this. And I saw Madonna come back from England and she was talking like an English person. And a lot of people gave her shit and I was like, I get it, mm. you know? It because it's I don't know what it is. I think it's in our DNA is like a survival mechanism, you know? Yeah, adapt. I'm I am not doing it on purpose, man, and I can't help it. But as a baby, when I heard police sirens, it was the same thing. And I tell you, I could give my mother a heart attack by busting out a police siren in the back seat at age three. It was piercing and believable, wow. right? It used to freak people out. And at that early age, I discovered the power of sound effects, right? Yeah. So I could just like be sitting down in a back seat and everybody's doing shit and I'm just playing with my little cars and I go, I can't do it now, but I go, boom, you know? And it would be like a cop car behind you that hits that one light and it would fucking freak them out, man. I'm free. <laughs> Right. So there's a, you know, and there was a power in effects and I was always attracted to visual effects. I mean, if it was like something on fire, you know, I was was naturally a clown, really quite simply, you know, I was always like, what do you mean? You know, come on, you know, all this type of stuff. And, and, um, and in the Henson model, what Henson, if you were familiar with the history of that company, they were more like, we expect the people running the puppets to do the voices, you know? Uh, Frank, uh, his name slipped me at the moment, but he was like number two, you know, Frank Oz. Mm. Uh, you know, you did the puppet, you did the voice. And when we started Oddworld, I was like, you're doing the animation, you're doing the voice. <laughs> and these guys are like, what? Go to hell, man. We're not doing it. But I'd walk around the studio. So I wanted all the voices to come from in-house. And I wanted the voices to be animated in a Looney Tunes-like way. I really didn't like the CG animated pictures that would come out and I hear Bruce Willis's voice and I hear Bruce Willis yep. and he's totally killing the raccoon for me, right? Yep. But when I hear Pixar, and I hear, yeah, I'm watching you. You know, these are characters, man. It's like slapstick, you know, it's like uh, uh, Looney Tunes, um, Hanna, you know, early Hanna-Barbera. Song. This was, 
real characters. These weren't normal people. And I loved that signature and I wanted that signature. And Henson did it beautifully too. And Henson, all those voices were largely in-house and they were part of the regular talent. They weren't special voice actors going out there and doing jobs like that. And that's what I thought Oddworld should be. And I really started the ball rolling. And, you know, you can tell by the games how many new voices came on, you know, <laughs> which was not a ton. And I still wound up doing a majority of them. But we kept it in-house. Michael Frost, the audio guy, he was great at doing voices. Tom Chung was uh, great at doing some voices. And uh, Jung, sorry. Mm. And uh, uh, so I got other people to participate. And I tried to do it uh, in a... In a uh, a fun way because I, I thought we this is the one thing that we can almost do instantaneously right we're making slaving over technology it takes forever to see whatever but voices we can get in the booth and we can tell from from when you say it we can tell if we're laughing or not yeah right and that's a great sort of real-time thing where it's like nah, say it this way say it that way come on just say it. and then you show totally and someone says something that's not in the script and all of a sudden you're like everyone's laughing and we go that's it that's what we're taking yeah and so uh, there's a lot of that real-time spontaneity that doesn't exist in game development, and it was happening in voices. So I, I, I really enjoyed the process. It was one of the fastest things you could turn around. And what I would do is I'd walk around the studio, and I'd hear people you know, talking to each other, and they'd be doing their own voices <laughs> like people do. Yeah. And I'd, like, I heard that shit get in the sound booth. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? I'd be like, come on, man. We're going to the sound booth. <laughs> I want to see that voice. I want you to read this. You know, and I would drag people in there kicking and screaming. And, but if you put them in a dark room and no one's watching – you know what I mean? Like, yeah. very self-conscious. The number one public fear is public speaking, mm. right? So being on a stage, if you watch that Trump show uh, where he was, uh, what was it? The, his first reality show? Oh, his first one. Um, oh, geez. Okay, I can't think of it right now. Yeah. Is, is this yeah. the You're Fired one or is it a different one? Yeah, yeah, You're Fired. Right? Oh, the Apprentice? The Apprentice. Boom. If you watch that, and I remember we recorded it, we watched it. But there was a great moment where he had his CFO, which was basically a badass New Yorker, right? This guy's, you could tell, he looked, you know, it, it, you could cast him in a mafia movie, mm. right? It's his chief financial officer. He's sitting at the boardroom. He's supposed to come out with some numbers and tell some things. He freezes on camera and can't talk, right? And Trump goes, that's okay. You know, this is, this is a lot of pressure when you're on camera, right? He couldn't talk. That was a tough looking guy. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, that's what he's afraid of. Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've helped a lot of people to the stage at different conferences, whether it was, you know, being involved at DICE and, and trying to, you know, bring speakers and make sure they, you know, had a good go of it, make sure they felt confident by the time they got to the stage that all the equipment was going to work for them, their slideshows going to work, you know, all that stuff. But I've seen people, I won't name names, and at times it's been me, who you would think they're going to get up there and just, you know, man, they just know what they're doing. And you, they get up there and you see they're shaking. Yeah. You know, they, they're like, you read, you, and you go, holy shit, you know, that's so-and-so, man. They, they've been doing this shit a long time. They're a powerhouse and they're shaking. Mm. Right. Yeah. And that's just the, the, the exposure we feel when we're on stage and, um, when the spotlight's on us. So doing voices is kind of, you got to let go of the inhibitions and just, and just go for what's going to cause that room to laugh. And I found you turn out all the lights. It's a lot easier. Yeah. So something about I'm not being watched. I'm not being. So I would drag people in kicking and screaming. And that's the legacy of Oddworld Voices. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's one of my favorite parts, parts about those games. Like it's it adds a certain personality and charm to it. And yeah, I love it. And it's funny because, you know, we were winning voice awards against uh, people that were paying <laughs> budgets for big stars and they weren't getting them. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not authenticity. And it's, it's exactly like you said, it's people were doing voices and you were doing characters. And that's really what 
had that impact there. Um, and, and I felt like a lot of voices uh, didn't do characters. A lot of vo- I I, I uh, moderated a panel at a uh, cosplay event in Hollywood last year or in Century City, you know, right before GDC. And uh, real voice talent was there, right? So I was like the lowest paid voice yeah, on, the, <laughs> on the bench. And, um, and by the way, all the people who ever did voices for us, we all did them for free. Wow. Meaning, yeah. meaning it, it was like, it was never in a budget. We were never going to hire SAG. We were like, let's have fun. Mm. You know, I mean, I never heard anyone complain about it because they, they get their name and a credit. I, I never took a dime for it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's not about, resume too. It, was, it was about trying to have fun. And we actually brought fans into the game and new and tasty. Oh, so a lot awesome. of the Mudokan voices were actually fans submitting their voices. And believe me, it cost us more to filter through all the submissions than it would have been to hire talent to do it. Mm-hmm. So some people are like, you're just doing it to milk the public. And it's like, no, we're doing it for the public can have a, their name and a credit in the game. Yeah, something you know? they love too. That's, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's what we're trying to do. We want to make you feel more part of the game. And we're, we're going to be doing more of that as we go forward. But, you know, so it's not exploitive. It's let's have fun. And this is a way to do it. And if yeah. it has to be calculated and, and accounted in the old way, then that fun is kind of harder to attain. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Lauren, I have one more thing to ask you, then I'll let you go, I promise. Uh, yeah. So we've been talking a lot about, you know, you talk about Sony and this new era of these smaller games and these smaller innovations and a lot more room and uh, space in that area. Do you think now, so a, a lot of people listening to this podcast are people who either just got into development or want to get in development. Do yeah. you think right now is the best time for someone who has a dream to make a game to enter and be able to just start making something at a smaller scale and be able to uh, not only create that, but distribute that to people? I don't know when there would be a better time. Mm-hmm. You know, And part of it is, is the best time is when your dream is at its peak of inertia inside you to have the discipline, the energy and the, the faith to pursue it. Yeah. Right. So uh, predicting forward, no one does it well. You know, as the Hollywood moguls would say, no one knows nothing. <laughs> yeah. That's what they say. As Wall Street would say, uh, the fund managers, there was just a whole uh, uh, expose done that they said all the fund managers that look brilliant in the 90s or the mutual fund, we found out it's luck. Mm. Right. So uh, you, it, who can really predict what's going on? That's what, you know, we were talking about Microsoft earlier and the old businesses and how they're struggling. You know, you, who had more money to better try to predict, to better try to technologically divine through finance minds what's coming, you know? And, you know, Tesla nails it, but still it's hard, right? Yeah. You know, uh, Elon Musk nails it, but it's still it's hard. So my opinion is if you have the passion, the fire inside you to do it, then that's the right time. And uh, now, because no matter what, it's not going to be an easy journey, right? Mm-hmm. And people come up to me with big game ideas. And yeah, if we can only get, you know, $8 million, and it's like, dude, it's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's not going to happen. And uh, so what is the simplest possible kernel you can do? And this is my advice for how you get there. What is the simplest possible kernel that makes you special? What is the simplest slice of the big thing that you want to build that makes you and your team special. And is that you, you have some new physics animation thing? Is it that you have uh, you know, some concept of how to, how to change something in, a, in an evolutionary or revolutionary way? How to uh, implement a new mechanic? You know, what is that little tiny kernel 
that you can execute on. Don't execute on the big idea because you, you, you know, the chance of you making it is slim and none. But the little one that you can then say, let's say it's animation. And you can say, you know what? We're going to do something really special with animation. But who's going to be our first audience? Who are we going to build awareness with? Who are we going to start early? And this is a problem with game developers is traditionally they build it in the thing and they wait till they're done and then they try and get it out there. But really what they got to be doing is building the audience earlier before they release. So where do you do that? You got to find the community that's interested in the special thing that you're doing. So let's say you're going to do something special with animation. Now you need to be talking, plugging into the global communities of animators, to the animation schools, to this and that and the other thing, so that every time you release a test, you have a YouTuber channels that's going to cover in that specific area. And they're going to expose you to people that are fans of that specific stuff. Mm -hmm. You think you're going to get your name on billboards, your IP name on billboards and shit. Think again. So if you, but if you can go into the animation community and all of a sudden what you did is so cool, even if it's something that's playing in a box, right? With no levels, right? Something is really cool in particular. If you get that into that community and that community is sharing it and spreading it, then you know, you got something, right? So you can say, look, we had zero marketing dollars, but we have 150,000 views on our, on our YouTube video. Mm. Well, yeah. now people are listening, right? And 150,000 views is hard to get, man. Right? It really is. And so that means there's an audience for it. Now, how big is that audience and how much money are you going to spend? But that's the way in. So what's your special thing? You know, if you're Cuphead, they hung their hat on. There's two things that make this special. And, and if you see six seconds of this footage, you're going to get it. And that's going to be, you know, the Schlesinger style early animation against classic platforming gaming. Two things, peanut butter and chocolate, you never saw go great together again. Here's a new peanut butter cup. And when you look at that, when I saw that, you know, one clip, I didn't need to see the whole seven clips. I saw one clip and I was like, oh, my God, I get it. Yep. Right. And how many views is that video getting? Is there, are there videos getting, you know? And I'm not saying they're being pushed and promoted in all the full capacity of what they could. But I shared it with people. Right. Yeah. And that's the key. Are you creating something interesting? No matter how small it is, they could have shown one level and it could have been done in an editing system and it looked like a game, but it wasn't even a really game. They could have put that out there. And, uh, and even if it was faked, they could have put that out there and it would have spread. And from that, they can then take it to people and say, look, this is why you want to support us. Yeah. Because look at how people love this shit. And we only did six seconds. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you got to show some traction that people actually want what you are, want to make. And so I would put that as a great example because in six, six, six seconds of watching that on screen, you get it and you haven't seen it before and you're interested. At least yeah. I am. Yeah. You know, a lot, of, a lot of other people obviously are too. Yeah, without a doubt. You're establishing, you know, like you said, you figure out this is what I'm good at or this is what I want to accomplish. And who's looking for that? Is, there some, is, is it worth investing the time making something like that? And like you said, that one clip, that's all I needed to see too, where you're like, I get it. That's awesome. I want more of that. And you establish it's that audience before you even release anything. Exactly. I remember Ice-T saying, anybody can rap. Anyone can make a song. It's got to be clever. You know, and really that applies across the whole board. Yeah. It's like anyone can get in there almost, you know, and make a game. But why is what you're making clever enough to cut through and get recognized? Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic advice for anyone getting in this. So, uh, Lauren, I really appreciate you spending almost the past two hours with me. 
Uh, this has <laughs> been know, uh, it's so much fun for me just to you know hear all these different stories and talk to you about all your different games. So um, really appreciate this, and hopefully in the future we can do this again because I feel like I still have like at least two or three dozen questions for you. So I have a feeling hopefully someday we can <laughs> go through even more. Yeah, we can do it. You know, we've done it before. We're doing it now. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Josiah. So yeah, I look forward to uh, everyone coming back for the next episode of the 1099. <laughs>